I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And if you need a Bible this morning, you can take the one that's in front of you and you'll find Ephesians 3 on page 977. I don't know how many of you realize this, uh, but today or this week marks one year that we have been in the Minor Prophets, studying those books, those smaller prophetic books in the back of our Old Testament together. It was a year ago, the first Sunday in June, that we began this journey together. And I wonder if it surprised any of you how much this journey, this study in the Minor Prophets over this past year has been to do with the love of God. I think maybe many of us expected that, of course, when we study the Minor Prophets, we're going we're gonna to see prophecies about Christ and about about what's to come and God's people. I imagine that we expected when we study the Minor Prophets to um, learn more about God's justice, uh, to find places of uh, great conviction in the Prophets, to, uh, to, to see a call to repentance as we study these Minor Prophets. And all of those things existed. We've seen them all. And yet mostly what we've seen over this last year is this story of God's relentless love for his people. That's what, we've, that's what we've seen. And Hosea, that we've been studying for these last several weeks, have you, have you truly, are you catching how radical this story is that God has put in his word? This, this story of Hosea? That God would take this prophet, and this prophet gets married, they have kids, and then, and then his wife leaves him and the kids, and she goes and she becomes a prostitute. And God in Hosea 3 says, Hosea, I want you to go find her, the one that's betrayed you, the one that has committed adultery against you and against your family. I want you to go find her, and I want you to to bring her back. Because, God says, I want people to see what I'm like. I want people to understand my love as God for my people. So would you please go demonstrate this with your wife who is now a prostitute? And of course, the disobedience that we see of God's people in Hosea um, is not just described as disobedience. It's not even just described as uh, idolatry. No, what we see in Hosea is our disobedience being described as adultery. That we are pursuing other lovers instead of God. That we are going after those other lovers. And God is saying, I want you to understand my relentless love for you. I want you to understand just how much and how I love you. And then last week when we were in Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible and has been for a while. Because it's in Hosea chapter 11 where we find this, this change, this radical shift of what we ought to have deserved or what we should have received from God to something completely different. You remember what we read last week? In verse 5 of Hosea 11, it says, speaking about God's people, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. And then in verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. And we would say, yes, that's right. These rebellious, these people, 
that are, that are turning away from you, God, that are, that are running after other lovers, they should, it's fair that you should not listen to them. It's fair that you should not pursue them. It's fair and right and just. And yet, verse 8, the very next sentence starts like this. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. And you say to yourself as you read that, what's going on here? How did that happen? How could someone love like that? And the answer comes right there in the middle of verse 9 of Hosea 11. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I can love like a love you don't even understand because I am God and not man. That's how I can love like that. This crazy, relentless love of God all through the Minor Prophets. And maybe... Maybe friends, brothers and sisters, members of Second Presbyterian Church, maybe what we've seen a little bit over this past year is the glimpse of the heart that our senior pastor has for this congregation. Because George has insisted on taking us on this journey that we might see, that we might wonder at, we might marvel at, that we might even grasp the relentless love of God. That he wanted that for us. And that's exactly what we find Paul wanting for these believers at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 3. The same passion, the same desire, the same heart that the Apostle Paul has for the Ephesians. He wants God's people to grasp the extravagant, crazy, relentless love that only comes from God. He wants them to know it. To grasp it. I would ask all of us this morning as we begin our time in the Word, are you grasping it? Are you grasping this relentless, crazy love that God has for you? Is God's love the source for all of your joy, for all of your thoughts? Is God's love the source for all of your emotions? Is it your peace? Is it, is it everything to you? Do you want it to be? Do you want to grasp it? Well, follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit, that is his Holy Spirit, in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations 
forever and ever. Amen. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, on this Pentecost Sunday, we would confess to you as we sit under your word and particularly before these verses that we are in deep waters and we need your help. We do not have in ourselves the capacity to comprehend, to grasp. And so we would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work in us and in this place in such a way that you would open up the eyes of our hearts that we might in new ways, in fresh ways, in deeper ways, grasp this relentless, crazy, immeasurable love of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know some of you who, uh, some of you men here who attend, amen, have attended this past semester as we've studied all, the, all these different prayers uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of you men here might be wondering, did, did Todd just get lazy on this Memorial Day weekend? Because I'm pretty sure that two weeks ago when we wrapped up the series uh, that we did in Amen, that, that Todd taught and he taught on these exact verses. Is he just trying to double up, hoping that we wouldn't know what was going on? Is that what's happening? Well, well, it is true that I did teach two weeks ago on this passage, but it is not true that I'm trying to be lazy or double up. What actually has taken place, what is the truth, is that for weeks and weeks now, going back into April, there's some things in this passage that I just can't get out of my head. Things that I didn't have the opportunity to teach a couple of weeks ago. Things that fit and so nicely in our study with, uh, of Hosea that, that just mesh together that I so badly want all of us as God's people to know. Some things here that I can't get out of my head. One of them is the fact that there's this, there's this mix of emotion and passion in the text along with truth and intellect. These things coming together in a magnificent way because Paul has been talking about things that he wants them to know. And now all of a sudden he switches to this moment of passion and he's not separating these things. Instead, he's bringing them together. And we see it right away in the very first thing that Paul says in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And that's a clue for us. Now, if we were uh, first century Jewish people, we would instantly know that Paul has gone into a deep moment of passion. But because we're here in the United States in 2023, we don't quite see it. And that's, this is what I need you to see. That for first century Jewish men, in fact, Jewish men and women, in fact, all Jewish people in, in Bible times and earlier, they didn't pray on their knees. When they pray... They pray standing with their hands like this. That was the normal way they prayed. Except for a few times in Scripture where you see this man or woman of God so being overwhelmed with passion, so being overwhelmed by emotion that they literally fall to their knees in prayer. And so that's what Paul is saying here. I'm so overwhelmed by the love of God for him to bring God's people together and build this church. I'm so overwhelmed with it that he just says he falls to his knees. All these things that he knows, all this theology is coming together with his heart and it's just meshing in this moment. Another thing that's here that's just astounding 
is the seeming contradiction that exists as Paul talks about how we would know and experience the love of Christ. You see, in verse 18, it says that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is, and then he goes on to talk about the measurements, and what he means by that is that they're immeasurable. So he says, I pray that you can comprehend the immeasurable. And you go, well, Paul, that's, that doesn't work. And then he goes further in verse 19, further on in verse 19, he says, I want you to know the unknowable. I want you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And then the thing that, that has captured my attention more than anything that I just can't get out of my head that is going to be, that is the center of this passage and I want it to be the center of our thoughts this morning is what we find at the very beginning of verse 18. You know, the, the, when Paul writes in his epistles, some of you know who, uh, who study, these, uh, study scripture or you've heard a pastor or teacher say this, that in the original Greek, a lot of this is just run on sentences. And when you're translating into English, we kind of break it up with commas and things like that. But the translators have a difficult time because Paul just gets going and he just keeps going. And so for, in order for us to understand what is the center, what is the point Paul's making, you kind of have to go through the clauses and the dependent clauses and you get down and you find, okay, that, that's the center and then all these things are supporting that. Well, the center of this passage, the very center of it, is what we find there at the beginning of verse 18, strength to comprehend. In fact, the very center is that word that's translated in our ESV, comprehend. That's the very center of it all. That word is translated in the NIV here as grasp. So here ESV, comprehend, there grasp. The Greek word is katalambano. Pretty sure none of you know that word. Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you scholars know this. And this is fascinating and so important for us to understand what Paul is saying. There are 15 times in the New Testament that that Greek word is used, katalambano. And in those 15 times, it's translated 10 different ways in English. You know what that tells us? It tells us it's a really hard word to translate. <laughs> because in the English, we're trying to figure out what, what, what would fit right here. Sometimes that word is translated overtake. Sometimes that word is translated seize. Sometimes that word is translated lay hold. Sometimes that trans word is translated win or conquer. Cotton Lombano. And I appreciate what Tim Keller has said about this Greek word, particularly as it applies right here in Ephesians 3. He says literally, that Greek word, katalambano, literally means ambush. And, and as, as Dr. Keller says, when you're ambushed, two things take place. You're surprised and you're instantly under control or you're instantly conquered. <laughs> so an ambush involves surprise, like, oh, whoa, here they are. And then, boom, you're instantly, you instantly have lost. You've instantly been conquered. Surprise and being conquered. And when it's here in Ephesians 3, in Paul's prayer, out of his passion, what he's saying is that, he, that, that this intellectual truth that he's been talking about in the first two chapters, this intellectual truth is now what he's praying. He wants it to be a heart experience. He wants our, our knowledge of the love of God to not just be an intellectual truth, but that that intellectual truth of the love of God would become a heart experience. Or as 
Tim Keller puts it, that information would become sensation. And that's why, and that's why Paul uses this word. Because it's a feeling word. It's something that we, ex- we experience the surprise. We are now conquered. There's something about it that is not just knowledge, but a hard experience. And it's not devoid of truth. He's not saying this is, you know, put truth aside, I just want you to feel. No, that's the what the world does. The world always tells us, well, if you're really going to feel love, if you're really going to feel these things, you just got to jettison your brain and you just got to move with your heart. Paul's not saying that here. Paul's saying, no, I want, I want the truth, I want the truth to actually become your heart experience. I want it to move you. It's like a truth that gives you goosebumps. I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you saw this uh, that took place over this past weekend, but that the uh, commencement speaker um, at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, uh, decided to give the 2,500 students that were there a gift. And he gave each of them $1,000. He announced it at the end of his commencement address. And he said, I want you to take the 500 of it and I want you to celebrate with it. And I want you to take the other 500 of it and I want you to give it away somehow, some charity do something. And he had these envelopes up there. But the moment that he announced, I'm going to give each of you $1,000. By the way, that's two and a half million that he gave away that day. I'm going to give each of you $1,000 instantly. All the, all the students there jumped up, started clapping, and I imagine they might have had goosebumps. You see, the truth, I'm going to give you $1,000, had moved into their hearts. It was now stirring up emotion. They had experience in it. That's just a small glimpse, a small taste of what Paul wants us to get here, what he's praying, that we would catalambano the love of Christ, be ambushed by it. It would control us. There's a couple other places here in the New Testament where that word is used that might help us understand these things in Ephesians a little bit more. Turn over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. So moving forward from Ephesians, just turn a few more pages and you'll get to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is talking about how, listen, if anybody has any reason to boast, if anybody wants to use worldly accolades to justify themselves, if you're talking about self-righteousness or self-justification Paul says I got a lot of that let me tell you how all these things about who I am both spiritually intellectually and he goes to that list and then he says there in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Philippians but whatever I gained whatever I gained I had counted as a loss for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as a law of a loss because of the surpassing worth, worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. He says, listen, all this stuff, all these worldly accolades, all this self-righteousness, it means nothing to me. I want to know Jesus. And that's what he says powerfully in verse 10, that I may know him, Christ, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see the passion. I want to know Jesus. And then he says, verse 12, and here it is, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That make it my own is Catalambano. That made me his own is Catalambano. I press on to lay hold of it, to grab it, to grasp it. I want it to be a feeling. I want to experience it, not just in my head, but in my heart, my whole being. Because Christ has laid hold of me. He has grabbed not just my mind, but my heart and my soul. Another place we see this is in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, you remember uh, first part of Acts that though Peter probably intellectually knew that the gospel should also go out to the Gentiles, Peter was really struggling as a guy who grew up with the experience that God's people were to be the Jewish people. So while he might have intellectually known the gospel needs to go to the Gentiles, man, he really struggled to live that out. Honestly, he was just struggling with prejudice and racism. And, and what takes place in chapter 10 is that this Gentile, Cornelius, wants to meet with Peter, and Peter's not sure about that because he's a Gentile. So God has Peter fall asleep, gives him this vision where, Paul, where God makes it clear in the vision, hey, listen, you got this wrong, Peter. And then look at verse 34, how Peter describes this realization. Verse 34 of Acts chapter 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand, I catalambano, that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter says, I, I, I knew it probably intellectually. I knew it was supposed to be that way. I just, I just couldn't get there. But God has got me there now. I get it. The lights went on and I felt it in my being. Oh, this gospel is for everyone. That is the same thing that Paul wants and prays for the readers, in, uh, the, uh, those in Ephesus, that information becomes sensation, that our knowledge of the love of God becomes something that fills our whole being, that it becomes an experience for us. So what is Paul saying when he says strength to experience information to sensation, strength to experience God's love? Well, the, the measurements that are given here, maybe some of you notice that there's four instead of three. Usually we just give three measurements. We don't have four dimensions. We just have three dimensions. And there have been early scholars, early in the first through the fourth century, who who wanted to place specific thoughts on this, really probably what's being said here by Paul is he's trying to come up with enough words to describe what is immeasurable. He's just trying to communicate the vastness of God's love. He's not speaking specifically about things. And yet, as he uses these words, it would draw to mind things that are specific to us about the love of Christ. And so to experience the love of Christ means to think and to feel what is, the, what is the breadth of his love? We can only, you only need to turn to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. When John, there before the throne of God, says, I, I look, I looked and beheld, and there before me was this multitude of people that no one could count. 
from every tribe and tongue and nation, every ethnicity. That the love of God has extended across the entire world, across all history. And people from everywhere have been loved by God. Look at the breadth of God's love. And then look at the, look at the uh, length of God's love. The length of God's love. You could turn to many places. I thought right away of Jeremiah 31.3 where God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. A love that goes on forever. Or some of you I know love Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 38 to 39. Where it basically says and lists out, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Not even time. Nothing. Do you see the length of Christ's love for you? And do you see the height of it? Think of Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven, where we await a Savior from there. Or again in Romans 8, where it says that your Savior who loves you is at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms interceding for you. Do you see the height of God's love for you? It reaches to realms that you and I can only barely imagine. And the depth of his love for us. Do you see that? You only have to look at the cross or look at our sin or look at the depths of our own depravity. Some of us in here have have plunged into places that we never thought we would go. And yet Christ's love has reached down into those places. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, God made Christ who knew no sin to become our sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. His love has reached down to the lowest places beyond what you and I can even imagine. And he goes there and he rescues any who would call out to him. No one, no one's sin is beyond the redemption brought by the love of Christ. Well, how do we get there? (laughs) How do we grasp this? Paul's praying it. I want to grasp it. It's right here in these verses. Four things. Paul gives us right here for us to grasp the immeasurable. First, there has to be an inner transformation by the Holy Spirit. You see that in verses 16 and 17. An inner transformation by the Holy Spirit has to take place in us. It says that according to the riches of God's glory, he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You see, this just isn't about love. It's not about you and I experiencing love as some kind of concept. That's what the world says. This is not love is love is love is love. Isn't love great? All we have is love. That's not what this is. This is the love of Christ. Experiencing the love of Christ requires, first of all, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that everyone in here has asked Christ to come and dwell inside you. And everyone in here has prayed, I am a sinner who is in desperate need of a Savior. Lord Jesus, would you please come and make your home in me? 
And if you have not, if that's not your faith, come find me. Email me, call me, let's talk. You can't know the love of Christ unless there's first an inner transformation by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, there has to be a living out of Christ's love for other people. That we would have to live out Christ's love for other people. This seems weird, but look what it says there in the uh, second part of verse 17. That you being rooted and grounded in love. This isn't talking about God's love for us, but this is talking about our love for God and for other people. And what Paul is saying here is that God's people are to be rooted and grounded in love. That we would live out, that we would seek to live out how Christ has loved us. We need to seek out loving others. And in doing so, we're going to begin to grasp more and more the love that Christ has for us. And that, of course, happens not because we're being good, sweet Southerners. That's not this kind of love. (laughs) This is a deep love, not a superficial love. That's why he uses the term rooted like a tree and grounded like the foundation of a building. That we would choose to love deeply. There's got to be an inner transformation by the Holy Spirit. There has to be a living out of Christ's love for others. And it has to be that we are in fellowship with God's family. That's number three. Now, I know some of you think that pastors talk about being in worship and being committed to the family of God just because we really want attendance to be high. No, it's just here in the scriptures. It's just here. (laughs) Do you see it? Verse 18, Paul prays, that they may have strength to katalambano, to seize, to grasp with all the saints. The height, the depth, the length. And then in verse 21, as he closes things out to him, to God be glory. Where? In the church. Cannot do this alone. Certainly the the love of God comes to us personally and powerfully, but it doesn't come to us that way alone. It comes to us in the family of God. And the best place for it to come to us is in the context of worship with God's people. That's just a biblical fact. It's not something pastors use to manipulate. (laughs) Just is what it is. I have a dear friend of mine who's my age but just got baptized three years ago. She lives here in Memphis. She doesn't go to this church. She goes to a different church. I was talking with her a few weeks ago and she said to me, her name is Margaret. Margaret said to me, she said, Todd, you know, this past week, I just had a terrible week. I mean, I was just struggling with stuff going on in my life. I was struggling to trust God. I was struggling to to believe God's love for me. And I was just, it was struggle, Todd. It was just a mess. And you know what I had to do, Todd, right? You know what I had to do? I said, no, what, Margaret, what'd you have to do? She said, I had to get to church. I had to get to church on Sunday. She said, that's what you got to do when you have bad weeks. I said, amen, sister. Can you come preach at my church, please? <laughs> it's exactly right. It is our tendency, isn't it? When we've had really, really bad, awful weeks, we're like, I just don't feel like going to church. Margaret had it right. You had it right, sister. It's got to be in the context of the fellowship of God's family. That's where we begin to grasp the immeasurable riches of God's love, the immeasurable, the the length, the, 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 the unknowable we begin to know and experience. 
There has to be an intertransformation of the Holy Spirit. There has to be a living out of Christ's love for others. We have to be doing this, living in the fellowship with God's family. And finally, number four, pray. 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 This is a prayer, right? Paul says, for this reason, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He's going to say, God, I want this in them, and so you need to do it. And then he points that out in verse 20. When he says, now to him, who is the him? God the Father. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God, I'm praying that they would know the unknowable. I'm praying that they would grasp the immeasurable. The only way that's going to happen is if I go to you who is able to do far more than we ask or think. So we pray We pray. And as we pray, God, work this love into me. We live it out in the fellowship of God's family and worship. We're living out Christ's love for others as we seek to love sacrificially. Seeking God to more and more make his home within us. Recently, Beth Moore, that great Bible teacher, Bible study writer that many of you have appreciated for so many years. Recently, Beth Moore was asked, what is the knot in your rope? What is that thing that when you're falling and slipping and feel like you've lost your grip, you can hold on to that? What keeps you from falling away into nothing? When all is despair, when everything else is lost, what catches you? What holds you fast when nothing is left to hold you fast? What is the knot in your rope? And Beth Moore said, oh, that's easy. It's John 15, 9, where Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. She says, that's the knot in my rope. As we go to prayer I want to give you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase from the message about these verses that have before us because I think it beautifully illustrates what it is we want God to do in us. Message says, And I ask the Father that with both feet planted firmly on love, you will be able to take in with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives. Full in the fullness of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty and the truth of your word. We would ask that these things that we can see on a page and and know in our minds that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would cause them to ambush us. That information might become sensation. That the truth might be mixed with hard experience. That we might know the unknowable and grasp the immeasurable. We ask the one who is able to do far more abundantly 
than anything we could think. Praying in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.